2: You're listening to episode 232 of TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the one and only Mr. Daniel Feinberg, The Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, my friend?
0: Oh, it goes pretty well. I went off to atone for my sins on Sunday evening at around 6.45, and, you know, the world was pretty much as it has been for the past five months. Uh, did anything happen while I was praying and whatnot?
2: Yes, the writer's strike is over. Over. Writers are officially back to work this week as their overall deals are getting reinstated. And the Guild has now sent tentative deal with the studios for a new three-year minimum basic agreement to membership. There will be a voting period. It is expected to be ratified, but we're going to get into that in our first segment. No mailbag this week, no headlines this week, because this is the news. So, yeah, you missed a little bit, Dan.
0: Well, let's break it down for the kids in several different ways.
2: Yeah, this week we're going to be joined for the third time during the strike and fourth time overall by Chris Kaiser, the co-chair of the WGA's negotiating committee. So we're going to let him explain the nitty-gritty details of the deal. But before that, leading off...
0: Number one.
2: writer strike is over, and this is really honestly just kind of the overarching picture of things dan
0: it is and certainly if your social media is anything like my social media people seem to be excited and it feels as if there's general jubilation in the writer's community which of course is the community that we spend a lot of time talking with slash talking about david saslop not so much someone who's been on the tv's top five podcast whereas hundreds of showrunners totally people who have been on the TV's Top 5 podcast, not that we're taking sides. So what do you want to say just in a general shape of things about what proved to ultimately be the second longest strike in Guild history? Just a few days short of breaking the record from 1988, I'm sure they are all happy that nobody decided to go for that record. First of all, let's start with the actual, tangible, meaningful stuff. The tentative agreement that exists, when is it voted on? what is the state of what writers are and are not able to do right now?
2: Well, writers are back to work the strike officially ended september 27th at 12:01 a.m pacific time as for the voting period well first of all there are meetings this week in los angeles and in new york and over zoom for members as the guild leadership will walk everyone through everything else at a certain point early next month the guild will have the opportunity to vote on whether to ratify the deal but yeah things are already back to work. You're starting to see some of the AMPTP member companies announce some new shows, but writers are... In the process of having their deals reinstated, but you know that's kind of the you know the the what's up next part. But what I'm most interested in is what they gained. And like I said, you know Chris Kaiser is going to go through some of the nitty gritty in our interview with him. That's in our third segment this week. But leading off, it's really you know the tentative deal for the first time. It does include streaming transparency. So we're still going to be saying and repeating ourselves that streamers don't release traditional viewership data because well they don't and they won't. But The Guild did get residuals tied to streaming success, and there will be a few people related to the Guild who will sign NDAs that can go and look under the hood and figure out all these other details. More than that, it's residuals now tied to streaming success. So there's a great story that our beloved colleague Rick Porter did for THR.com that explains how that streaming-based residual will work. In short, it's a lot of math. And there is basically the same viewership metric that they are going to be continue to use. And that is total time spent in short. It's going to be the total time spent divided by the, the, the length of the movie, or this, or all episodes of the series or season divided by the U.S. and I believe it's just the domestic subs. But again, this is very in the weeds. Read the story that's up on thr.com that explains the streaming-based residuals. But basically, as Chris Kaiser is going to say in an upcoming segment, expect about 25% of shows made for streaming to to qualify for these residuals. The tentative deal also does include minimum room size guarantees. And if you haven't heard it yet, but we reunited a bunch of writers from the Happy Endings writers room. That was, we had, I think, 13 or 14 guests, and they opened up all about the importance of room size and how it helps create good programming and what it means for the next generation of showrunners that was back in episode 218 from june 2023 yeah other gains include protections for comedy and variety writers they did not get everything but one thing that they tried to get but didn't was the ability to honor other picket lines so you'll hear more from kaiser on this the tentative deal was presented earlier this week to rank and file members in LA at the Palladium, which is a pretty big uh, concert venue here. And I had one showrunner who was in attendance describe it to me as being like a rock concert. It was standing ovation after standing ovation for everyone on the negotiating committee to Ellen Stutzman to Drew Carey, who foot the bill at Bob's Big Boy and Swingers here for writers for five months. And even for fake Carol Lombardini, who is still not revealing their identity. I did an interview via email with them this week. It's up on THR.com. Very fun read. And yes, I have no idea who that is still. So as for what's next, we're going to get into that in a second. But the deal is expected to be overwhelmingly ratified by members. They're already back at work. Suspended overall deals are in the process of being reinstated. Warner Brothers sent their first letters out on Wednesday night to mega producers that you could imagine who they are, the Berlantis, the J.J. Abrams types. Other studios are going to start to follow suit. The big question in that regard is which of those deals will be extended versus simply just reinstated. So that's very in the weeds. But I did a story on that on THR.com on Wednesday. So you can go ahead and read that for more info. But yeah, nothing was force majeure. No deals that I know of were force majeure. So if things expired during the strike and they opted to not renew them, that's one thing. But uh, yeah, lots to break down here, Dan.
0: And lots of the answers to many of your questions. Well, many of them are going to be answered by Chris Kaiser in an upcoming segment. But as Leslie just indicated, many, many of your questions can be answered on THR.com with the tremendous coverage courtesy of the great Leslie Goldberg, the great Katie Kilkenny, Kim Masters, Rick Porter, Alex Weprin, who else from our wonderful team has been doing coverage of various different things.
2: Winston Show has a fantastic piece about the AI analysis and what the writers gained, what the studios gained, and, and what how they approached the moving yardstick on that one. You'll hear much more from Kaiser on that. But yeah, it's a great team coverage. Lots of stuff about uh, reactions to the deal. I spoke with a lot of writers this week and last about what this means, where the gains are, where the loopholes are, etc. But in a general sense, it, it really does feel like a building block lock of a deal that started with things that people never thought the wga would get and guess what as chris kaiser said when he first joined us in may and again this summer around the 100 day mark they did find a way to get a little bit of everything that they were asking for because these are all points that are interconnected so that's that's where things sit dan but ding dong the strike is over at least the writer's strike
1: number two
0: up next what's next Well, the first thing that you have to keep in mind regarding what's next is while the WGA strike is over and a new deal is being ratified, SAG-AFTRA remains on strike, which means that some things can begin to get back to normal but other things are short of getting back to normal but on the other hand there's even hope there because apparently talks will be resuming with SAG-AFTRA and the AMPTP on Monday 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 October 2nd so I mean everybody is hoping that that other strike well now it's just The strike, that the strike will be over soon. What exactly is returning to work, returning to process, and what is still kind of in limbo and may not actually be back in business for several months to come, still?
2: Let's start with SAG AFTRA. So, the Performers Union and the AMPTP said that negotiations will resume October 2nd. That's more than 70 days after SAG AFTRA went out on strike. And the CEOs for Key executives that's NBC Universal's Donna Langley, Disney CEO Bob Iger, Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zasloff, and Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarandos were in the room for the what turned out to be the final round of negotiations with the Writers Guild. They are expected to be in the room again with SAG Aftra as they resume negotiations. So the sources that I've spoken with on the studio side indicate that they think. I think this could be resolved quickly, which would be great because like I said, they've been out on strike for 70 plus days and counting. And... The idea here, at least from a, a logistical standpoint, is you get the deal done with the writers, you get scripts and pre-production things start rolling now, and then when once the actors come back, you'll have scripts and can literally call action when you get actors back. The big question now is where do we stand with getting new programming? From a pragmatic point of view, the shows that require fewer writers, the ones that are more immediate, think late night shows. Those are the first ones back. They were also the first ones affected. From a logical standpoint, stop me if you've heard this before, namely from a couple of years ago during our coverage of the COVID pandemic. It's very similar. So, you're going to get the late night talk shows. Bill Maher is back on Friday. The rest of the broadcast late night, the Strike Force hosts are all going to go back next week. That's going to be followed by daytime talk shows, the syndicated stuff. So, sorry, Drew Barrymore. If you had just been patient for a little bit more, you probably could have prevented some serious damage to your reputation. Saturday Night Live is going to ramp back up. Basically, it's going to follow a very familiar model from what we've seen during the pandemic once the SAG-AFTRA and AMPTP agree to a deal. In terms of a lot of the things that we cover a lot on this show, scripted television and broadcast, that remains a little bit harder to explain. So I've spoken with a lot of studio side and network side sources about the ramp up. And basically what we're looking at is If the the WGA deal is ratified, it's still unlikely that you can actually start producing between the window of Thanksgiving and Christmas. First of all, that's a very expensive time to be in production. Theoretically, it takes 60 days to get production up and running. And assuming that the WGA deal and everything is ratified by October 15th, you're possibly looking at the first week of January before production starts, then eight weeks later, give or take. And that's according to one seasoned executive with experience in both broadcast and on the studio side. The earliest that you'll start seeing scripted original programming on linear may not be until the first week of April. And that again is if the SAG after strike is resolved quickly. So the question now is going to be what happens to these scripted shows? What kind of orders will they get? Because if they can start shooting in January and you're not going to really see in any episodes until April or maybe the end of March, that's a very, very short TV season considering the traditional broadcast season is September to May. Will networks want to get eight episodes of Law & Order or Grey's Anatomy up and then take the summer? Off and then resume in September? Or could they start filming now, keep things going, and then just hold off on rolling out new scripted shows or new and returning scripted shows until fall 2024? So that's a big question because the other piece of this is the more success that you're going to see with shows that have already aired elsewhere, think. Yellowstone, which is having some success airing old episodes on CBS, the less likely these networks are to need some of these scripted shows in the immediate future. Again, you'll probably get more in in ad revenue from new episodes of Grey's Anatomy than a show like Yellowstone that has already aired and streamed elsewhere before. Lots going on here, lots to keep your eye on, and obviously this because the writer's strike is ended, it doesn't mean that we're going to stop talking about
1: it. We
0: are definitely going to talk a lot more about it. One possibility you didn't mention is following the 90210 Saved by the Bell model and giving us Beach Club summer seasons of all of our favorite shows. Just all of them taking place over the summer at a beach club in Malibu. NCIS Beach Club. I'm there. Young Sheldon Beach Club. That's that's what I think the kids
2: are. I want. think I'm less there for that. <laughs> but anyway, I get what you're saying. I don't know that they'll do that because that's still very expensive. And don't forget, they've already got tons of unscripted stuff in their cupboards. Wait and see approach. We'll see how things, things shake out and we'll continue to cover it here.
3: The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
2: Our next guest by this point should need no introduction. We're pleased to welcome Chris Kaiser back to the podcast for what is his third visit as co-chair of the WGA's negotiating committee and his fourth time overall after he originally joined us in April 2022 to discuss the first season of his Max original series, Julia. Kaiser previously joined us May 12th at the onset of the writer strike and again, August 11th at the 100-day marker. Chris, thank you again for joining us. Now, the th- your third time on the show for The Strike, fourth time overall. And beyond that, congratulations on the tentative deal. How are you feeling today?
1: It's a little overwhelming, say Thank you, by the way. It's gratitude to the membership and relief that we accomplished what we did, a little bit of adjusted desire to get back obviously to what we what i came here what we all came here to do none of us are it's weird in all of this right i mean we negotiate against all these professional negotiators we're just writers so we have great professionals on our side but the bunch of us on the negotiating team we do what we have to do obviously and we're happy to do it but what we'd like to do is get back to what we came here to do and now i get to do that and everyone does and with a feeling that we you know as i said to the membership last night that we paid our debt to those who came before and to those who will come after us. And we took care of ourselves. That's the best feeling in the
0: world. The reports out of that event on on Wednesday night have been, you know, fairly rapturous and little clips here and there and whatnot. What does a moment like that surrounded by the people who you've been doing all of this work for for the past, well, not just five months, but before that, what does the experience of being in that room feel
1: like? it's overwhelming, obviously. I mean, you're not—we're none of us are actually, we're not performers. Some of us are, but I'm not. And so, and I don't think of myself as that way. And I don't think of that as a performance, but the idea of, of having that kind of group response to a single event, I guess what it does is it really encapsulates what the whole thing was about, right? Because what we've done all the way through is we've done something together. We've often been together on picket lines, but not always together. So it means something to, in the shrine meeting at the very beginning of the strike or the palladium meeting at the end of the strike to come together entirely as a, a guild a couple of times and to remember that the power and the joy, all of that comes from a, a collective action. So that's that's the most important thing. It was just, we just needed to be together. It was celebratory because we accomplished something, but no matter what had happened, we needed to be together to say this was something that, that was a The effort of said mostly anonymous people in the world, but people whom we got to meet and know much better over the course of the last five months and with whom we are connected deeply, you know, in this one moment in time. So it was a perfect encapsulation of what this whole thing was about, which is a lot of people coming together to do something that they could never have done by themselves.
2: So obviously, you know, the tentative deal, which obviously is now with, with members for ratification, but you've got viewership data, transparency for streaming. You've got uh, performance-based success uh, residuals for streaming shows, among other gains. What are you most proud of in this deal, aside from the, the solidarity that got you here?
1: You know, I wouldn't say it's any one thing, Leslie. The thing is, we, we started this by saying there were a number of existential threats things that were going on for writers that made the career of writing very difficult and might make it impossible going forward. And they were threats to all different mem- sectors of the membership. We sort of promised together that we would leave no one behind and that though we were going to negotiate the solutions to those problems within some parameters, we weren't, keep using this word, going to leave this negotiation having half saved ourselves. So what I'm most proud of is the combination of all those things that we dealt with AI as we could at this moment. And we said that streaming does not absolve companies of paying residuals when things are reused beyond a certain benchmark, that we were going to protect Appendix A writers moving into streaming, that we were going to begin to, to take care of screenwriters in the same way, but also address in the MBA as best we could the abuses that they had been suffering for all these decades, the abuse of free work most particularly. And then for television episodic writers, we would address the pernicious effects of the mini room, the creep of the mini room, and what looked like the slow decimation of the writer's room itself. And so it wasn't any one of those things, because any one of those things would have left a lot of other people behind or left a threat out there. It was the combination of all of them that I think people thought was impossible, but that we knew was our absolute necessary goal. And that's what we achieved. Like some imperfections in that as are always true. Things we wish we could have gotten, things we still have to fight for, ways we have to enforce the contracts, risks we have to look out for. All of that's always true. But by and large, we had an agenda and we checked off each box and we and we left nobody behind.
2: Yeah, one one thing that you guys didn't get was the ability to honor other strikes. Mm-hmm. How do you suggest WGA members support SAG-AFTRA as, as they go back to work?
1: Well, one thing I would say about that is, Leslie, it was on the table at the very end. the Companies would not give it to us. We did not believe that the membership, or by the way, the members of SAG-AFTRA or IATSE or the Teamsters wanted us to continue to strike in order to get that. We were clear there was conversation between Ellen and, and the leadership of those of those guilds. The members are still, we encourage them. We will be out there picketing alongside SAG. We will do the same thing if IATSE and whatever IATSE and the Teamsters need for us or any of the other craft unions. That's powerful. It's meaningful to remember that those guilds don't need us to, to help them Shut down production. They can do that very well themselves. What what we got from people honoring our picket lines and from SAG being out there is something that the other guilds don't need in reciprocity quite the same way. But they they will have our overwhelming support and our endless gratitude. And it, and I'm sure conversations will continue between Ellen and Lindsay Doherty and and Duncan um, about strategy. I, I think the thing we did for them the best, the most important thing we did for them, we've already done, which is we reshaped the table in the negotiating room we re, rebalanced the power between labor and and management in a way that says you can too and I think that's that's the legacy of this. Being out on the picket line is important. I, I don't want to diminish how difficult it would be for somebody for me to have to cross a picket line having others stand by. It. I hope that writers, for example, who have writers' rooms, for example, will try to find ways of not having to do that, will find off-site or remote ways of, of working together to whatever extent the companies allow it. Uh, so all those things will add up together. But uh, it doesn't diminish the meaningful solidarity these guilds and unions have had uh, together over the past uh, the past summer and
2: going forward you know i I went back and listened to our previous interviews with you about the strike and one of the things that was very common in in your your comments at the times was stressing that you needed to get everything that the WGA was asking for. And this deal does have gains across the board and with every issue, including data transparency, which is obviously an important one from my vantage point. But how do you see this deal, and obviously it's still tentative, being the framework for the industry three years from now? Because it does feel like you've kicked open the door for uh, transparency and streaming residuals. That can only grow in future MBAs.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, but you've got it exactly right because you've been here and so you know how these things work. The foot in the door is, is something that matters. And I think we've got meaningful gains. It's not just the way we started and we'll, we'll take care of things later, but when it comes to data transparency, we're going to know much more. We're going to know a lot more because of AVOD, You know, I think I think the black box is opening up, and that's going to help. I hope that the residual formula that we set for the companies will improve for us, as these residual formulas often do. Uh, We'll know more about AI and training, and how we're going to enforce our contract rights uh, and what the copyright, their company copyright um, that intersects with it going forward. We're going to know a lot more about how the companies are behaving with regard to writers' rooms, and um, I hope it will extend the. You know, in the ways that we we did, I think it was actually presidential to talk about Appendix A in this contract the way that we did. That will also allow us to begin to extend those um, those gains for writers. All of it will be that way. Having said that, who's to say what twenty twenty six will bring? And there may be there may be new challenges as well. So I don't I don't want to say that 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 contract is only going to be about extending these gains but that's always that's always true i mean look how we did that in this contract on foreign residuals for example um, and and on minimum so it's uh, it builds on each other one thing that you know people have to remember is when we talk about this contract and it has an enormous monetary value compared to other contracts those monetary gains keep going year after year they are incremental there we calculate them for a 3 year period but they don't go away and so the, the meaning for writers as those many other minimums begin to tear up over time, I think is going to be really
2: important. Yeah. You know, getting into the, the weeds of the negotiation, we reported that last week when, when talks resumed that Bob Iger, Donna Langley, Ted Sarandos, and David Zaslov were in the room for what wound up being this last round of negotiations. What did their presence bring to bargaining and how did that change everything?
1: it did. It changed everything. I mean, for the first 102 days of the strike or so, the ANPTP had used that playbook that it used in 2007 and 8, the pattern playbook, make a deal with DGA. We hope that we can make a deal with SAG. We can isolate the Writers Guild and drive everyone to pattern. That obviously didn't work. Uh, it kept people out for a really long time. And the question of whether they intended or it just happened that they were wishing on us a, as, as Faye Carroll said, a little light homelessness um, is up for grabs. But that's what they did. Right. Um, and then we could come this other uh, moment of negotiations, the post uh, pattern period where really what was going on is that companies were negotiating amongst themselves dealing with their own impasse on how to actually move things forward. And you saw evidence of that early on with their claim that they couldn't counter, that we hadn't counted the question of who went first or not. All of which was, as I think I tried to say, but it was harder to understand in the middle, a version of just a, a holding pattern of an exercise of the power they had to try to divide the membership while they worked it out amongst themselves. When that broke, when it, when enough was enough, you know, after, Warner had to announce a half a billion dollar loss and it became clear that nothing they were saying was going to split this guild and that sag was still on. afterward the CEOs engaged in a way that they haven't had to over the last 40 years because by and large the A&P TV has been very successful at suppressing labor when they did it was meaningful they did the work you know they did the work before we got in the room they had a streaming uh, a streaming bonus proposal ready for us that was sophisticated and rational and there were things we wanted from it that we got and you know to improve it and things we didn't but they had made a meaningful commitment And by the time we got their first counter on on Wednesday, we knew that we had a lot of work to do and there were some risks that we were finally engaged in a real negotiation. That's owing to the four of them and their ability to communicate with each other, but also to wrestle the other members of the AMPTP who were not in the room. And, you know, we can talk about it more it began with phone calls over the course of weeks and weeks and weeks in, in setting that table and building some trust, I think, which was really necessary. I, I would have to say that I am grateful for their engagement and the wisdom they had at the end. I am very disappointed in how long it took them and the, and the amount of pain that was caused because they waited as long as they did. So, um, somebody asked us, who were the good guys and who were the bad guys? And David Goodman said they were all bad guys until they all became good guys.
2: Yeah, that's a fair answer. Yeah, you know when you guys did present um, the deal to the rank and file members uh, this, this week at the Palladium, it was was revealed that the deal was actually made not at the AMPTP's headquarters at the Sherman Oaks Galleria, but in the WGA boardroom where the negotiations occurred for the, those final few days. How historic is that in terms of WGA union history and? Why was that decision made and how did that change things at all?
1: Yeah, I would. I don't want to overstate that because that makes it seem like it's a, a big power play. We didn't want to go back to the AMPTP because this wasn't going to be AMPTP processed. It was really going to be that way. And we offered the Guild as a reasonable place not to have to rent out hotel rooms and hide and all of that. It was. It gave us, because no one expected it, it was a really good place for us to do. It was our version of Camp David where we could finally do what we needed to do. It was in silence without a lot of... The conversation with, uh, you know, with all due respect to the press, the members or anything is just to get inside a bubble and make the deal. And so that that's what it was. I think the deal is precedential. I wouldn't worry so much about the location, although it was... You know, it was it was better to be there than back at the AMPTP for a, a, a thousand reasons I don't need to explain. I,
0: I want to talk about a couple semantic things that I found very interesting in the agreement. One of the things I saw at least a half dozen people tweeting about enthusiastically on Tuesday night was the piece of the agreement that directly references or codifies the showrunner on a show as A writer to you. What was the significance of that piece of of verbiage
1: in the deal? It is is, is meaningful. I don't want to overstate it, right? I mean, it gives it it connects the idea of of a a writer, showrunner, a head writer with showrunner powers to hire and make those decisions, and that's really meaningful in the contract, and it will be meaningful going forward. But it doesn't it doesn't encompass all the roles that a showrunner may have. So I just I don't we're not headlining it particularly, but it, it is a it is a meaningful extra. You know, it's a piece of what it meant to actually begin to talk about preserving the writer's room that was crit- that was critically important. And I, I think it will have benefits to us. But as I said, let's not put too much focus on it right now. But is there is there a sort of
0: formalizing of that definition that is something that you view as being kind of a, a long-term, I guess, goal? Because I saw a lot of people were like, okay, this is going to mean that they can no longer say that a director is the showrunner, or they can never say that a non-writing producer is the showrunner. But it sounds like you don't view it as being in any way necessarily that formal. But would you like there to be something comparably formal?
1: You know, it was okay, Dan. I'm not even I, because it's not going to be my decision. I, I don't. I don't really want to get into that in particular. I think it is a gain. It's meaningful. It's not. It's not. The beginning and the end. So talking a little
0: bit about the the writer's room and the desire to protect the minimum size, what were the conversations that led to the, unless a single writer is employed to write all episodes of a season, carve out or exception in that part of the agreement?
1: Well, that was the thing that the, the CEO said that they needed in order to make the deal. And we had said from the very beginning that our issue was never with writers who wrote by themselves Our issue was with writers who wanted to write with other people and who weren't allowed to do so. Our fear, and it is still a little bit of a fear, is that in all these things, there's room for mischief. And so I I believe that the rule that says you need to be contracted from the very beginning to write all the episodes We'll limit the application of this rationally. Limit the application of this. I don't believe that there are that many people who are actually seeking to do the work, the entirety of the work of a show by themselves. I think most shows are made in ways that, for example, some of the famous examples of single showrunners uh, having the leeway to do what they do, you know, don't apply. You know, it is not the same thing to be doing that with limited resources and full sets of notes and all of that. I mean, there. I don't mean that that those people don't get any input. But there's a there's a, a level of autonomy that some people have that not everyone is going to have, even those who dream of it. I don't think the companies are going to want, uh, in a world in which the diversity of voices and the requirement and the advantages, to be honest with you, of collaborative effort are so clear in most television to turn the reins of a given show solely over to a single person, so I think I think the rational business decisions on both on both labor and management would mean that that's not going to be used all that much. Having said that, we're going to be careful to make sure that our members aren't pressured. Members who say I'd like a writing staff are not going to be pressured to say why don't you do it by yourself, um, and we'll have to talk to showrunners about that. And we're going to be very careful also that writers who are hired on those shows with the understanding that they are never going to write, are not then asked to write in a way to make it easier. We're going to have to enforce the contract, and we will. But I don't want to begin this by saying that I anticipate the companies are going to be doing that. I think I think the companies were articulating a position which I understand, which is there is a genuine desire on the part of some people, and it has worked, to do shows by themselves that is not harmful to the cause of writing or the membership of the Writers Guild. It was, I think, 10 series in 2022, some of them written by the same person. So as long as that's true... Taylor
2: Sheridan. <coughs> Sorry. Excuse me.
1: Be <laughs> okay? <Are> you okay? <laughs> Have well, a sip of Diet Coke or something, uh, Leslie. You'll yeah, feel yeah, better. Yeah. So, as as, look, as long as that's true, um, we did what we needed to do, or, or we're doing what we need to do, or we've made the first attempt to do what we need to do, and we'll see how this all plays out, which is to make sure that mini rooms don't invade the process, this development thing doesn't become television writing itself, and that the staff is not decimated by companies who are who, for some reason... Decided to abandon 50 years of process that made all this great television and said, well, you know, it's more efficient to do it with almost nobody for almost no amount of time at all. That's what we wanted to avoid.
2: So as we talk about minimum room size, there has been some chatter today, today as we record this is Thursday, from lower level writers that say the minimum staffing structure only guarantees positions to upper level writers what do you, what's your message to those lower level writers who are upset that there isn't language that specifically protects them in this new deal?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a complicated thing. It's not, I think it's a more complicated story than just that. Though I understand that everyone's worried about the place they are right now. We had to be worried about the entire ladder of success for writers and think about all of those things. And so we did things for writers at every different level. It'll take me a little a second to do this. So for staff writers, for example, we gave them, we we secured script fees. It's a huge deal, huge deal economically. It also means that staff writers aren't as inexpensive as they used to be. It, I hope, means that staff writers won't stay at staff writer for as long. For story editors and executive story editors, we actually gave them a minimum increase. The most important thing we did is that we guaranteed that the writer's room that had begun to diminish, or the mini room that began to take time away, you know, limited number of weeks, was no longer going to govern their careers from here on out, which meant That they actually have opportunities all the way through and opportunities not only to be executive story editors and executive story editors, but to move up to another position. We also made, uh, created another minimum level, which is the level for writer producers. That's really important for writer producers. It's also really important for story editors and executive story editors because in a world in which everyone is, or most people are working at minimum, or many people are working at minimum, there's an enormous disadvantage. To having to get hired when you have less experience, if you're making the same amount of money as a supervising producer, now a supervising producer is paid more. So companies have to make rational decisions between hiring some of the new writers at a lower level and more experienced writers at a higher level. Once you get past the six episodes or lower, if you look at the minimum room size, it has lots of space for writers at staff writer, story editor, executive story editor. Up at the higher levels, even more than half the space is reserved for them that's really important. It means there's a lot of place for them to go. Really what we're talking about was a very small allocation. For example, in the six episode or less room, there are three writer positions guaranteed. One's going to be a showrunner. One's certainly going to be an upper level writer. And the question is, do you make the third position a guarantee of an upper level writer or, or a story editor? And our feeling was this. First, to guarantee it for upper level writer puts an enormous amount of money in writer's pockets. Second, It means that the the positions that writers are going to occupy in their careers for eighty percent of their careers or so are guaranteed to be there. The thing that we were really worried about was saying let's guarantee lower level positions and get that mid career bottleneck and the impossibility of moving up from story editor to co EP and event a co producer and eventually to supervising producer. That's what we were worried about. When you get to the lower number of rooms, for example, the number of episodes, a showrunner who runs a six episode show is almost always one of those prestige limited series, they have power. And what we put into place was a minimum, right? And so it's a lot easier for that showrunner to say, I'd also like a staff writer. I'd also like a story editor. And we expect that they're going to do that. Much more difficult to say, well, I've got a staff writer and a story editor. I'd like to make sure I'm hiring a supervising producer, or a co-EP. So that's really our, our thinking about that, is that there are lots of protections in place for lower level writers in economics, and in the future, in the future of their work, but we also had to, even for them, make sure there were lots of opportunities for mid-level writers and upper-level writers, because we don't want anyone to be having a five-year career that gets stalled at co-producer level. And I understand the fear, because first of all, we are not fully in charge of who gets hired, right? We we set parameters, but we don't make the final decisions. So that's what I would say to them: is that this is really a contract for everybody the guarantees end up being for everybody. But some of this is going to play out above the minimum, right? It's going to play out in the way showrunners hire people and how a career plays out over the long
2: haul. Obviously, the you know, the room size guarantees one big area that you got. The other is you did crack the door open for streaming transparency. But it does that area does feel like a space where the AMPTP held relatively firm why do you think that's the biggest stand they took and what does it mean for the business going forward if there's still if the streamers are this reluctant to let anyone know how many people are watching their shows and now that almost every streamer has an ad supported tier do you expect Those numbers to start coming out through other avenues.
1: I do, I do. And I'm not, I mean, look, it it, it was a slow start. They did give it before they gave us money. Let's remember that, though, that was not the last thing they gave us. It was the actual monetary value of the the reuse that came last. The Guild already has information on reuse, it now has information, pretty specific information on original viewership of, of original programs. And I think with the increase of both ad supported advertising and also resale to secondary markets, we're going to get a lot more information. We also had good conversations with some CEOs who said this black box is opening up and it's not even good for us in some ways. The inability for even people inside our company to not. And he's, this person said this black box actually exists inside our company. Not everyone knows what's going on. It's devastating for the morale of executives who have no idea how well their work is being done. I think this is all going to open up over time. This is the first step. I think the world is moving in our direction on transparency.
2: That's great because I'm sick of being the, uh, you know, streamers don't release viewership data soundbite. I can't, like two plus years of doing that on the podcast is enough for me. So
1: we do have some problem. I mean, Apple won't tell anyone what <laughs> what, their, what their viewership is. You can only imagine what that means about their viewership.
2: The, the follow-up is, How did you guys determine that the streaming metric would be total hours viewed versus how many subscribers actually completed a series, an episode, or a movie type thing?
1: Well, how it worked was more interactive than that. We we had made an initial proposal that was based on time viewed uh, and and hitting you know a certain number of uh, a, a certain number of views above a benchmark. The company, but we had said to the companies, look, you you do have more information than we do. You are in some ways better equipped to assess the way in which Repeat viewership actually has something to do for you with value uh, with value. I, I would say, by the way, if I can parenthetically, you know, one of the problems with streaming is the companies have in their business model entirely divorced the easy connection between somebody watching a given episode of a show or or watching a movie and the value of that view you know, in the old world, a rerun came with advertising dollars. It also came eventually, if you're doing well enough with resale to another market that brought in money in a hermetically sealed silo in which things are put up on a on a site and never move. The question is, does the, you know, the person rewatching something or the, the 10 millionth person watching something you know, add a given amount of value or another given amount of value to the companies. And we don't really have any clear way of measuring that. We did say this, which is, it's very clear that stranger things or Ted Lasso is worth something to you. And so the fact that you can't figure it out doesn't mean that it's valueless. But if you've got a better idea of how to measure that, measure it. And they came back With this formula, and we decided to use their template because it it has, it makes some logical sense. What it, I mean, they made the decision about whether it would be completed completion or the aggregate of the total number of hours watched down to, I think, six minutes in six minute increments. What was really interesting about what they did is the formula that we had presented probably meant that those services that had the highest number of subscribers were likely to pay more than anyone else they were just obviously going to have more views what they came back with was a was somewhat more democratic i think way of looking at it which is to say success in viewership has to be measured against the benchmark of each individual service so that spreads the burden across all of the all of the services and Let's Netflix off the hook a little bit in that sense at Disney. I don't mean off the hook. I just mean that it's still got to be 20% of their viewership. In the end, they calculated about 25% of programs would fit this metric, which is, I think, a pretty good place to start.
0: But even there, I feel like even since we started talking to you on strike-related topics at the beginning of the summer, there have been large shifts structurally in the streaming space, the number of streaming services that were entirely ad-free before that have now begun to add ad tiers, it feels like every week there's a new one of those. So the idea of what a subscriber base doesn't even feel like it's the same thing to me. There's the premium subscriber base, the middle level subscriber base, the lower level subscriber base, and and they could be having different behaviors. How insulated do you feel this deal is against that shift that's already in progress, not to be confused with any shifts that are going to happen.
1: years from now or whatever the influence of technology and the changes in business are always the most critical thing in reassessing an mba we can future proof it only up to a certain point i think this basic principle works pretty well as a beginning way of talking about bonus residuals for reuse we also have terms we negotiated in avod that will take care that i think are a good start there that give us the same terms as broadcast on for high, uh, for certain two tiers, so that the at the higher tier budget tier, we get the same terms as broadcast, and at the lower tier, basic cable, that's awfully good too at a two percent residual. So we're we're doing what we can, obviously, to anticipate the world, the way the world is changing, and as you know, the old saying, going where the puck is going to be instead of where it was, but. Um, since neither you nor I actually know where the buck is going to be, we're going to have to come back and see some of these things. Yeah,
2: you know, as we talk about technology, you know, there are protections in this deal about artificial intelligence, as well as it feels like you guys did kick open the door here a lot to review the technology as the industry changes, but what was the most challenging part in securing the AI protections while also leaving that door open for both writers and the studios?
1: Yeah, it's an, it's a, it was a good complicated question. It was, interestingly, I I think the AI conversation in some ways wasn't the most difficult to begin with, and yet some of the stuff got left to the end because it was the most complicated to deal with. I do want to say, by the way, most complicated to deal with, shouldn't be mistaken for most important for writers necessarily. It was just stuff that was complex. So if I have a sec, i would just say what I think we did. I think we did, we really got almost essentially everything we wanted on the question of what happens going forward in the intersection of AI with our workflow, that AI isn't literary material, that no writer can be forced to use AI, that a writer must be a person, that AI does not interfere with the writer's Compensation or credits or or separated rights—that was really important. Those things are meaningful protection going forward to make sure that we are not we as writers are not being replaced by AI, which was in some ways I think the existential scare for right. everybody. The other question was what happens to the stuff that the companies already own and can scrub and you know train AI with to put out other product, and how do we deal with that? A couple of things to say about that. The first is just to remember that. We're not talking here about ChatGPT, about OpenAI, about the stuff that Microsoft and Google are developing, anything that's outside the companies, people who don't own the copyright, companies that don't own the copyright, who would seek to use our material that we have some rights in and the companies have some rights in to produce something else. There, this contract can't deal with that, obviously, because we don't have a relationship directly with it. We don't have a, a contractual relationship with those people. There, we and the companies are on the same page. We will be allies in protecting our work and theirs. The last remaining question is what happens with the stuff the companies actually do own? You know, we've written scripts for them, they've made movies of those scripts, they own the copyright on those things. That is a given. The intersection between AI and those copyrights with copyright law there is not fully determined. And so what they have the right to do from a training point of view, I think, is not entirely determined. We also have contract rights that remain that you know have to be negotiated with regard to their copyright about compensation and credit potentially and separated rights that can limit the use of their copyright. And what we did there, I think in some wisdom was just to say, we retain all of our rights under law, under law in the NBA, and they retain any of the rights that they claim. And as this progresses, when it begins to happen, we will, we will work that out. We will negotiate that out, which is, you know, it was tough to do because we, we were both in some ways negotiating these Mutually slightly different nightmare scenarios, and we didn't really know what the nightmare was. (laughs) So, so, and it may not be a nightmare, right? It's just we just our imaginations run wild, and and so I think to say we we retain all of our rights is much different from saying to a company go use it any way you want, and then we can talk at some point, and you can tell us what you want to pay us. That's not what we said. We said it was rights that we have under law and uh, and the NBA we retain, and I, I think that was a wise way, for example, Dan to say we have to know what we don't know and to say that's that's going to have to be worked out later
0: let's take a little step back and sort of look from you know 30,000 feet or however much from your perspective what does the process of restoration of trust look like where where do you feel like there's going to need to be the most work to bring everybody now back into the collaborative process and where do you think it's just going to be business as usual
1: well i think i think to be honest with you mostly it's business as usual because most of the people whom the writers deal with day to day are not they're not the labor executives and they're not the CEOs they are the creative people with whom we work with whom we have really i mean you know you it varies obviously across the board but with whom we have good relationships i think a lot of writers will tell you that we got many messages from them across you know during the, this period of Whatever support they could give without feeling like they were stepping over the line, I think most of the people who work with us in that way understand the risks that we were facing and the changes in the business and how that would working out. So I, I'm not too worried about that. The other side of this question is, what do you do about the A and PTP, right? I mean, I think this and that's going to be interesting for SAG and eventually for IA and for the Teamsters and any of the other uh, anyone else who has to make a deal with them. It's become clear, clearer that the AMPTP is, is somewhat of a broken process. You know, it was born in the 1980s during the Reagan era, really tough for labor, really very much a low point for unions in this country. It developed a playbook of suppressing wages and working conditions that worked almost perfectly. Really, only the 2007-8 strike um, was a, a little bump in all of that. A part, it was one of the reasons why the CEOs, I think, didn't actually get involved. They never had to worry about it. They just tell their labor execs, deal with our labor costs. I've got I've got much bigger problems to deal with or things I care about. Turns out that's not the way unions are anymore um, and that we need to be accounted for. And you can't put everybody out on strike and just say that the process works. You think just as important as that, I think it's become clear. and We've said it all the way through. The companies understand that it didn't work for them either. You know, that this, that the conflicts amongst them were part of the reason why this took so long, why the CEOs had to come in and take control of the process, eventually negotiate with each other and with the members of the MPTP who are in the room. It cost them a huge amount. In the end. They made a deal that, as far as I can tell from people who talk to me in the business, seems pretty fair and reasonable. And most people can't understand why it couldn't have been made many months ago without all of this damage. I mean damage to everybody, not just damage to writers and crews, but damage to the city and damage to the companies. None of it was necessary. And so I think the companies themselves are going to have to look at this. I think they're a little afraid of each other at this point because you know, I called it a, like a kind of mutual suicide pact. And we got very close to that, that they had signed something like that. Uh, I don't know. But, so we will see what happens. We're not in total control of that. They will have to assess it. You don't think the AMPTP is the same again.
2: I, I'm sure you saw the news this this week, that, or I think it was this week. It's honestly feels like the last 14 days rolled into one giant, really long day. Yeah. A lot of the streaming companies have formed their own coalition. Do you think that there's any chance that that becomes them breaking off of from the AMPTP to, and they, they form their own group.
1: You know, it's possible. I can't, I can't speculate it. You could also make a speculation that the legacy companies have got a real incentive to do the same thing and say, we can't afford this alliance, even when we're at cross business purposes often.
2: You know, there, there was a tweet going around this week that said the whole strike could have been over in 10 days, had the CEOs been in the room to begin with. SAG uh, last night or Wednesday night just announced that talks are resuming next week. And some CEOs are expected to be in attendance, and there's also a rumor going around that they will not be at the AMPTP headquarters, but rather at SAG-AFTRA's headquarters. So, what are your expectations uh, about what's next for SAG, given what you have learned about how negotiations go when you have four central CEOs in the room as part of the negotiation?
1: I don't know. You know, I, I, it's, I can only speculate so much because I'm not. I'm not really. Uh, obviously, I'm not in the room, and I can't speak for what SAG needs. They have very Big needs, complicated needs, and uh, but existential issues for their members as well. I have to believe that the CEOs who spent those three days with us and understood that that contract needed to be made to save the business understand that there was no point in doing that if they don't do a version of the same thing with that. I think that's what the important thing is that we everyone woke up finally and said, the "Thing we've been doing for the past four months doesn't make any sense at all." And the A&P TV was never going to do that because they were never designed to do anything but say no. So the CEOs had to take control, which they did. I am—I have all my fingers crossed that they will—they will approach SAG in the way they approached us in those last three days, which is to say that there's a real negotiation to go on, but a firm commitment to come out with a deal that recognizes what labor needs to go forward. In our case, as the CEOs said themselves, it wasn't even really the, didn't even have that enormous an impact on their bottom line, you know, in, in the long run. So that's that's my prayer for it, but only time time will tell. It wouldn't make very much sense, would it, that they went through all of this, they came in and sat down with us, and that they don't have the same commitment to SAG. But I don't, I'm not going to be in that room.
2: I, I don't want to stress you out, but you know, as you think about the next negotiation, first of all, will you be back for the 2026 MBA negotiation?
1: It was an honor to do this. Uh, it was a, an enormous responsibility uh, that I, a negotiation committee, negotiating committee, and David Goodman took on. I've done this for a long time. I've you no, know, I was president and then had a bunch of negotiations and the agency campaign. At some point, I think. Other people will take over, and there are so many amazing people on that negotiating people and committee and the membership. I don't worry about that. In the same way, as it turns out, what a gift Ellen Stutzman was. You 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 turn over a leaf, and you don't know what's going to happen, and you find out that um, that you are actually in broad daylight, and things are good. And so I'm I'm not worried about it. I I won't do this again. But I hope that all of us who did this, you know, set a establish a way of of relating to the membership and the membership has come to understand us, a a bond between leadership and the membership that will not be broken and that whoever takes over this role will benefit
2: from. Obviously, as someone who's leaving, but you're still very versed as a showrunner in your own right on the issues that are affecting your community and the guild as a whole. To me, there's some issues that came up even before this round of negotiations and that have only been furthered uh, during them, but but, um, that I would like to see at least addressed in 2026, including like the idea that all these streaming services are just pulling content from their platforms in a cost saving mode. But like this content just, and I want, I need to really stop calling it content, but this programming just evaporates into the ether and that's hard work of hundreds of people, money spent time spent that just is erased from our collective, memory that goes nowhere doesn't get resold to it anywhere it's just gone is that something that that you guys have talked on um even during negotiations or even as an aside uh, that's on your radar for future negotiations
1: we didn't because we had a lot of stuff on our tape yeah. uh, on our plate so bit. that we weren't, <laughs> we weren't what else might we do later i you know i, I don't want to weigh in on what future leadership is going to do on something like that i will say somebody's been in the business a while that there are elements of that that have always been true. I've had, I've, I've made shows uh, I have never seen again uh, on on broadcast. I hope that what will end up happening is this. Let uh, a lot of this stuff will be sold to other platforms and will live there and then be memorialized in whatever way, whether it's you know so that showrunners and and fans can have access to it, if not on a streaming service. I don't think, and this is entirely me and not me as the NEGCOM chair, that. The seeming promise that was made at the very early days of streaming, that anything you made was going to remain on a platform forever, was going to make sense forever. You know, you get 10 years down the line and there are thousands of programs and that library becomes so enormous and some of them are in stacks way in the basement that no one ever sees. And I I just don't know that the expectation was, that it was reasonable to expect that that stuff would always be available on on a streaming service, I, I hope as you say that it doesn't disappear because there's a lot of great work and and how it is how it's preserved I think is up to other people and some of it may be other platforms but it wasn't a, a question that I, we it was a question we had asked we were asked by people it's not a question I worried about in this negotiation because it was outside our power to take care of it is really the company's decision what to do with its product but you know I, I leave that to others to take care of it. and I understand it from the point of view of somebody. Who, who loves watching television programs that you're, you're upset about that stuff going away. By the way, Corollary, since we're just having a chat now, I, I do think that I hope there's a move away from from pick up and cancel quickly. I'm sure very few episodes where shows keep on, you know, just they go away uh, within a year or so or two years. I think that there is, From my, my impression is that the audience loves that stuff that it consumes like novels But it's also missing some of the things that it loved because it lived in their lives forever. There's a reason why those old classic television shows and some not very old are doing so well on streaming services, because you get connected to a story and to characters and you don't want to come and go. You don't want the streaming services entirely to get used to your new fix every weekend and to forget about the thing that you loved before. So maybe there'll just be a new rebalancing. I, and I do think there will be, by the way. And again, I'm not the expert in this. I think the move to AVOD, I think all of this stuff is te- uh, is teaching us that, We'll shift back a little bit in the direction of the way old broadcast of somewhat longer orders and shows that audiences can live with across years. It doesn't mean that all of that prestige TV that w- that is being made or was being made is going to disappear, but there, there may be a rebalancing.
2: As we uh, start to wrap up here, you mentioned uh, the account earlier, but uh, what do you think of the fake Carol Lombardini uh, viral social media account?
1: I think if there's a Nobel Prize for social media at some point that... Th- Whoever Faye Carol is <laughs> should be on the short list. Um, I have to say, that kept me and the negcom I assume the, the membership too, it kept us going through many, many difficult days. I don't know, it's as if that person were in the room with us, an unerring ear. Whoever that writer is should be employed forever.
2: <laughs> so go hire that person. <laughs> You'll figure out who that person is and then go hire yeah, yeah. Chris, we understand you've been a little bit busy, but what are you planning to watch since you haven't really been watching much, obviously, or not nothing at all during the last uh, five months? What's on deck?
1: Well, oh, okay, a bunch of that. I haven't really been watching very much. I really want to watch the next uh, next season or the season, I don't know how long ago it was, of Somebody Somewhere, because I love that. Um, I'm really looking forward to catching up on the, the third season of The Great. Uh, which I know got cancelled while we were in the middle of all of this, and I didn't have time to write a letter. Um, but I loved that show, and so I want to—I want to watch that. I'm sure there are other things that I haven't thought of. I also have to say I didn't get to see Barbie. I haven't gotten to see Oppenheimer. I really want to see Killers of the Flower Moon. There's so much. There's so many movies that I really want to see. All that stuff that came out in Toronto and, and Telluride, and, and so I'm—I am looking forward to getting back into the world to both writing again and being a fan of the things that other people write. That's that's going to be a, a, a great relief.
2: And now you get to possibly promote something that you have coming up, right?
1: Oh, yes. I didn't want to jump on that. Yeah. The second season of Julia is premiering in, in the middle of November. And so I'm, I'm glad to have something like that to come back to. That is, it's actually nice to come out of this and to say, oh, I, I remember I I made something with Daniel Goldfarb and a lot of other people, and and now I get to share that with everybody. So we'll see how that goes, uh, and also get to reconnect to everybody at Max, um, all the execs who who were partners in that, and and Sarah and all of them. And so it's going to be it's going to be great. I just want to pay tribute to the membership again. You know, I don't I don't think we can stop this without saying that. This is really about 11,000 people who who looked out for each other under under the hardest of circumstances. And that's what unions are. And that's what labor power comes from. Uh, That's why strikes work. There's no way around that. We wish the same success for SAG and IATSE and the Teamsters. And we hope that they have, in the end, the same wisdom that Ellen Stutzman gave us and the rest of the Guild staff. This is a tribute to thousands and thousands of people, as I said, whose names you'll never know but who stood up to power and said, we need to be accounted for and then were, And that is, as I said to the membership, a little bit of a miracle
2: that we lived through. Well, a good note to end on. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your continued wisdom and for joining us, not once, not twice, but three times during the strike and four times overall. We look forward to talking with you much more in the future. Thank you so
1: much, Chris. Thank you both. Number four.
2: Up fourth. Spoiler alert, it's a series in review segment as we turn our focus to the grand finale of a late and now great comedy, Reservation Dogs from FX. Joining us again is BFF of the Five and Rolling Stone chief TV critic Alan Seppenwall.
3: Hey, uh, guys, first time, long time. It's a
0: real privilege to get to come on the show. You, you got to be apparently the first best friend of the five, which I feel like is going to cause several other people, including Chris Kaiser, to feel very, very insecure. So uh, we can have more than one best friend. This is not like unique where you can't be more unique. No, no, no. We've, we've got a few best friends, but surely Alan is one of our best. Well, thank you. I'm touched. <laughs> even if even if i'm about to go on another monologue about the fact that maybe you're not our only best but anyway welcome back as always alan <laughs> uh, always a pleasure
2: so let's start with reservation dogs i am admittedly behind i am going to mute myself and let you guys duke it out over how where the show winds up on uh, your number your top 10 lists for the year and yeah here i go
3: well I mean that's going to be a very short conversation it's it's number 1
0: is it is okay so you're you're locked in at number 1
3: yeah i mean succession was great there have been some other great things that you know from the first half of the year that I'm already blanking on but like this is one of the great shows of all time and this is one of the great final seasons of all time and to me there's no question
0: okay totally fair i'm i am not going to commit to that i i will commit to as of now i can't see any two shows being one and two other than reservation dogs in succession for me but i want to give things a chance to mellow a little bit because you know on a pure recency bias thing. Yes, absolutely Reservation Dogs would be number 1, but if I decide come December that Succession needs to be number 1 and Reservation Dogs needs to be number 2, I'm not going to be ashamed of it. But sure, as as of now, yes, if I made my list, probably Reservation Dogs would be number 1. So okay, let's let's just start with uh with the finale. We have both written about the finale. You talked to Sterling Harjo about the finale and about the show in general. We all had concerns when It was announced when production was already done on season three, that the show was going to be ending. And the question of whether or not this was going to feel like a series finale, it did feel like a series finale. Did it feel like the right series finale, Alan?
3: It did. I mean, it was funny because as you and I've talked about, you get to the eighth episode and the eighth episode really felt like a series finale. There was all this full circle stuff with the rival gang getting invited to join the reservation dogs Big getting footage of them doing the chip truck robbery from the very first episode. Um, You know, Maximus and Fixico finally reconciling while Kenny Boy's giving that speech. And I watched that and I thought to myself, well, geez, why is this not the end of the show? And then the next week we get this incredible, you know, sort of before sunrise tribute with Ethan Hawke uh, and Devry Jacobs doing this duet. And I'm like, okay, this probably could have been the end of the show, although it only involves the two of them. And so that might not have been right. And then we got to this. And this episode was so good on so many levels and especially the beginning scene at the prison where uh Billy Jack is visiting her aunt and it's Lily Gladstone and Lily Gladstone delivers this whole speech about what happens when you lose people and how no one has ever really gone and parts of them live on in everybody else. And it's like, She's talking about native culture, but she's also talking about reservation dogs and about this idea that like everyone is going to go off and try to do their own thing. And the show is gone, but not forgotten. And it's influential continuance. You have that on one end with this actress who is probably going to go on to get an Oscar nomination, if not win an Oscar for uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, by all accounts. And then the episode in the series ends with Graham Greene, Wes Studi, and Gary Farmer, the three sort of grand old men of indigenous cinema, all sitting together and toasting to both the good they did and the idea of the next one. And I'm not sure like you could come up with a more beautiful summation of both sort of where native cinema and TV has come and is going to, but also in between this sort of beautiful uh, feature of the entire Reservation coming together to say goodbye to Fixico and Willie Jack ascending to a position of leadership. You know, I cried a bunch, I laughed a bunch when Cheese whacked White Steve in the head with the shovel. I mean, how could you not, you know, laugh very heartily at that? And I just thought it it captured so much of what the series was trying to say throughout that I watched and said, yes, this should have been the finale.
0: Absolutely, it, it there's no question though and and this is something that is obviously it's a gift because some shows can't end uh, successfully once other shows and successfully many times we've talked in in other podcasts and, and here about the idea that the series finale of Friday Night Lights was a wonderful thing, but it might have been like the third best series finale that Friday Night Lights did. That the season one finale might have been a better series finale and that the season three finale might have been a better series finale.
3: Reservation uh, hold on, like... L- Leslie, I believe, wants to tag in.
2: <laughs> hold <laughs> I'm, on I'm a glad... second here. No one uh-huh. told me we would be talking about Friday Night Lights. <laughs> (laughs) That's
0: the great thing about either being a critic or playing a critic for a segment is that you get
2: to talk about what you want to talk about. Friday Night Lights and Parenthood, I will argue. I will fight you, Dan and Alan. Maybe not at the same time because that just sounds like a lot. Two my favorite drama finales ever. And granted, I have some major holes in my viewing history, but still, I hold those series finales in my heart.
3: Leslie, Dan is not saying that these are bad finales. They are incredible finales. What Dan is saying is there were two other times in the run of Friday Night Lights where Jason Kadams had to make an episode that he thought might be the series finale.
2: Right, the perennial and those are show, the. I understand Yeah.
3: Yeah, the end of season one where they win state and, you know, everything seems to be happy ending, but Coach is going to take the job in Austin. And the end of season three where Coach gets fired by Dylan and they're going to have to start over again. And he and Tammy walk off into the sunset arm in arm saying, you know, always and always and always. Both of
0: those are incredible series finales. They just weren't the end of the series. And, and that's I think fair. I, you know, and I think I maybe prefer the one in three finales to five. And I, I don't think See, I necessarily. That's where, do.
2: that's where I will fight you. again. <laughs> that's where I will fight you. I'm going to mute, go back to mute and, and, to, and mentally check out because I'm trying not to be spoiled on this show. <laughs>
0: And that's the great thing. We can't spoil the show. I swear to God, there is nothing. I mean, look, once we already spoiled that Ethan Hawke is in an episode and that he's absolutely fantastic, which is surely a thing that was more fun if you were surprised by it, but it does not require you being surprised by it to think it's fantastic. Otherwise, I don't think we're really going to spoil the show for anyone if we say, very sadly, old man Fixico dies.
3: I mean, the thing about this show, and we talk about it with some others, like uh, Dan and my beloved Rectify, for instance, like nothing actually happens on Reservation Dogs. You know, plot wise, the plot is not important. It's entirely about the feeling of being there, the feeling of being around these characters, the world that Sterling Harjo and Taika Waititi created, all of that. So us telling you any of the plot, Leslie, is not going to be a problem at all when you get back to finishing it. Which you should. Which you should. Don't rush me.
0: But as I said in my in my article about the finale, I think that the finale of season two, which is a wonderful finale, and season two, which was my number one show of last year, was your number one also last year, right? I think so. I'd have to. I'll look it up while you talk. Okay. Yeah. It it was to me that was kind of the finale that tied up the pilot because the pilot you go back and the pilot is these four kids grieving the loss of their best friend contemplating what it will take to get them out of Okern, Oklahoma. And it, you know, as the show starts, they're hijacking chip trucks, they're stealing edibles off of old women's porches, they're even, you know, they're stealing copper wire. It's the what can we do to get out of Okern? What can we do to get to California? Will they do that in the season 2 finale? That is the resolution of that arc, and then they go back. They return home and what season three was and what season three was so beautifully was reconciling the notion of what home means and what this particular home means and what it means to leave. And so the finale, and here we're going to spoil little things that really, again, aren't spoiling, does is it situates where the entire community is and where it's and where it's going forward and how it's going forward, whether it's Alora going to college and and getting the chance to realign her dreams, whether it's Willie Jack kind of going through the journey, uh, learning Fixico, old man Fixico's wizard ways, uh, but also just understanding her connection to her past and her connection to the generations. I, I, you know, there's that Bear doesn't necessarily have the clear here's what's next for him, but He's acquired enough wisdom from William Knifeman that he understands his place in this and he understands how to control his anger and he understands how to control his grief in a way that he didn't when the show started. I did feel like probably Cheese got a little bit posed in the finale i think that his arc ends up being the one that doesn't get as fully realized but he had the episode where he went fishing with the elders and he also has the moment at the grave where he's like i can't wait to be an elder oh my god that's like i that
3: could be a joke and it's not i like i missed it up at that the idea that like this kid who is acutely aware that he's significantly younger than his friends and still looks baby-faced is like i can't wait to be an elder that's beautiful.
0: Oh, absolutely. And so he got that, which is a great moment. And as you say, he got to hit White Steve in the face with a shovel, <laughs> which which produced a snort laugh that was probably deafening because uh, I I, <laughs> I laughed hard at that. And it's one of those things where you have to kind of step back and and be like, oh, right, this is kind of a comedy insofar as we have to classify things uh, because that's what we do. Whereas, you know, the The pilot's a different thing. I don't know. I always tend to, with things like this, go back and and rewatch earlier episodes to kind of align where the finale is drawing from and and what threads it's pulling at. Did you do any rewatching in the last week of earlier episodes?
3: No, no, I just, I didn't have the time. But the thing to what you're speaking about before, about how season two's finale could have been the end of the show, what I liked is it felt kind of necessary to me. Season two closes off the journey the characters were on when we meet them in the pilot. But there's more to the journey. The idea is they get out of Okern, they make it all the way to California, and then they sort of realize, at least some of them, no, the life I want is on the reservation. You know, Bear is going to be perfectly happy doing construction, you know, doing roofs, whatever it is. He seems okay. He's with Jackie now, so he's fine. Alora gets out, but she doesn't have to run all the way to California. She's going to college, I think, relatively nearby. You know, even Bear's mom is only going to Oklahoma City, which is a few hours drive if if I've mapped it out right. So, like, it, this season is all about them learning to better appreciate where they're from, the people who are around them, the elders, but just the community and the culture in general. And I, like, if we had not gotten that, it still would have been a great show, but this just so completely deepened the experience of it and deepened our understanding of these four people.
0: Yeah, re- reconciling kind of where they're from on on the two levels, reconciling where they're from as in O'Kern, rec- recognizing where they're from in terms of the past. So that great episode uh, with the sort of dazed and confused Muppet Babies version of, of the older characters, which was such a beautiful episode and so completely served its purpose. Like the level on which... All of those characters suddenly became different people, having seen where they were in the mid-70s. It was wonderful. And and I almost, you know, look, I have very few complaints about this show in general, but I kind of wonder what additional impact it might have been if that episode had been in, in season two. You know, if there had been an additional five or 10 episodes where we were able to remember what these people looked like, what they sounded like, what their dreams were in the mid 70s. But but the epi- that was such a that was such a good episode. Now,
3: how do you feel about the fact that Sterling Harjo told me at one point he wanted to do a whole season
0: in the 70s? Would that have been too much for you? I think it would have been confusing. <laughs> I think <laughs> I, but on the other hand, would I have watched it? I th- I think doing a whole season of it probably would have been tough within the context of the show and i would have missed prequel sure exactly he could do it now i would not say no ip is all the rage reservation dogs is now ip reservation dogs is very flimsy ip to build upon for the people who haven't experienced it but if if they announced tomorrow that they were doing a reservation dogs babies show with the 1970s version of those characters Sure, I would. I would be. That would be my, my most anticipated show of, of whatever year it was. I, I did go back and and rewatch a lot of stuff. Went back and rewatched the pilot, which is a great pilot, but is definitely not really the show that the show became. It's not like the show became better, but the show. I, I you know, my instinct is to compare it. To, is Is to simply say first episode is a more Taika Waititi style version of the show, you know, like, I I can't imagine the third season of the show doing anything like the platoon paintball shootout homage from the pilot that that to me feels very Taika Waititi. But what I did go back and also rewatch is the premiere of the second season, The Curse, which to me feels potentially more like kind of the pilot that the finale was resolving. It's an episode that has Multiple mentions and explanations for Man Moon. Uh, the book that was buried with Old Man Fixico, which
3: no, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. No, That's sorry, one got, of my
0: favorite jokes. It got, <laughs> it got taken by Willie Jack's father, right? Or yeah, yeah,
3: because he, he looked at. He's like, oh, I want to read this, and he walked
0: away with the book that Big had tearfully put into the coffin. But sort of the origin story of that book and that reference comes in that episode. It also has the great monologue from Bucky, from the West Duty character, about about Stardust. And about how we're all made of these pieces of the universe, which is so very much what Lily Gladstone's monologue is also about. And again, ties in so wonderfully with the teenage version of Bucky we meet in the flashback episode. I loved how how much it felt like the finale was a conclusion to season two's premiere at least as much as the original pilot. That's great. See, now you make me want to
3: go back and rewatch the whole series. My wife has been looking for a new show since we finished The Diplomat. And while this is
0: certainly not the exact same flavor of television, I think I can talk her into it. I mean, you should definitely tell her that uh, Rolling Stone chief TV critic Alan Sepinwell said it was going to be his number one show of 2023. I think that would I think that would sway your wife. She's never watched The Wire, so
3: I only have, and she's seen two episodes of Breaking Bad, one when I she was in a hospital room with me,
0: so I only have so much sway. <laughs> Fair enough. What else do you want to talk about about the finale of Reservation Dogs?
3: Oh, God. Um, Kenny, when Kenny Boy shows up, he gets his hero moment when he's cut his hair into a mohawk, and he has shovels, and suddenly, like, everybody likes him as opposed to looking at him as the the dirtbag who runs the junkyard. That was nice. The final conversation between Bear and William Knifeman was great. Like, that's a character who really walked the line between just being utterly ludicrous and kind of endearing and at times genuinely wise. And I thought that last scene between them had all of those elements. So, so that was great. I don't know. I'm, just, I'm amazed to realize that this episode is the first time that Graham Greene and Gary Farmer and Wes Studi have all been on camera together in something. Like how is that even possible? Like there was a period in Hollywood where they hired like only 5 Native American actors in anything ever and they were 3 of the 5.
0: Yes, but you just said it. The the answer is there's always been a finite number of Native American actors in Hollywood that Hollywood was able to employ at any given moment. There's been an even more finite number of projects that would give those people things to do at all. So Honestly, it doesn't surprise me all that much, unfortunately. I wish it surprised me more, but you know what <laughs> this is this was one of the basis of my article, is is that at a certain point, the talent that Sterling Harjo was able to accumulate both in front of and behind the camera on this show, it is going to be more a denial of those resources than anything else if these people don't work again, if the other writers on this show. Do not get other shows. If the entire ensemble cast is not populating TV, it's a failure of TV, nothing else. And so I'm I'm pre-disgusted already by the <laughs> fact that in like three years, we're inevitably gonna be like, why haven't these two actors worked? in things that we've seen for years, in look at the directors of all of these episodes. Why are they not directing everything? I- I'm already pre-annoyed. My, you know, your, your recap was, how long did you say that your finale recap was? 2,500 words. Okay, mine was a little bit shorter. I think it was like 2,000 because I, I took pity on my, my temporary editor, uh, David Rooney. I decided he didn't really need to read more than that. And and one of the things I felt immediate regret about was not talking about kind of the wrap-up of uh, Kenny Boy and Ansel because. Again, going back to the pilot, they're so totally punchlines to jokes. That that is what those two characters are. They, you know, basically, Ansel is sort of a deranged meth head, and Kenny Boy is. <sighs> he's he's sort of a source of mockery and you know that he thinks that he thinks he's native but they don't really think he is but you go back to the episode where he gets to be the getaway driver and he gets to stand up to big hell you go back to the episode where he and bigger in the woods and then you go to the finale the show is so respectful of that character's dignity ultimately to me that is a beautiful arc that that show got to have Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a beautiful show.
2: Well, gentlemen, I think that was a beautiful note to end on. I cannot wait to make some time to catch up on this show.
3: Everyone who is listening to this podcast should go watch Reservation Dogs right now. Even if you're in traffic, pull over, watch Reservation Dogs. And
0: be sure to read Alan's terrific interview with Sterling Harjo and his recap over at rollingstone.com. Thank you so much, as always, for joining us and being a BFF of the five, Alan. Look, I didn't ask for BFF status, but I will proudly take it. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Alan. Number
3: five.
2: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Dan, I have not a freaking clue what's coming out this week. I haven't. I've watched Dodger games on mute, and that's honestly the most TV I've watched in the past two weeks. So you tell me, boss.
0: There's some stuff this week. There's a lot more stuff next week, and next week we'll probably do an October preview because October is a sort of strange month. As Leslie indicated in the the second segment on this podcast, I feel like we're going to have a lot of strange months. It's going to be a lot of months of things that were in the can for various different amounts of time for kind of international acquisitions. There are several international shows that are coming in October that are vaguely interesting. So yeah, this week is... I've only had the chance to get to some things. I know that Jesse L. Martin had a, had an NBC show that premiered earlier this week. I have not gotten to that. Angie, I think, reviewed it, so... I'm sure it exists. Just like next week, there's going to be an NBC show with Mark Paul Gossler. That one I I have not yet watched, but I will watch, and I'll have a review of it on next week's podcast. Let's start, I guess, with the, the sort of returning show that I feel like just kind of mentioning because I like it, and I'll give you a couple seconds to look back in your magical spreadsheet. When did we have Starstruck creator Rose Matafeo on the podcast to talk about season two of Starstruck? Leslie?
2: Rose Matafeo joined us for season two? Season one? I can't remember. No, season two. Season Uh, two. There you go, of season two of Starstruck, back in episode 161. March twenty fifth, twenty twenty two.
0: Not that long ago. Feels like just yesterday. No, uh, as as I mentioned. No, it doesn't. In, uh, <laughs> no, it. Okay, fine. It feels like a hundred years ago. What? What am I talking? Well, I mean, given that you also just combined it into a season one and season two visit. So that was a long time ago. And Starstruck remains a kind of amusing show because it premiered with absolutely no push whatsoever from HBO Max slash Max. You know, they just figured they would drop it and then, you know, some people would find it and people actually did find it because it's a really, really charming rom-com. And then season two got a little bit more buzz, promotion, etc. And season three feels somewhat to me as if it has gone back to being a little bit more hey, if you like the show, it still exists. If you don't like it and don't know it exists, whatever. And so what I would compare the show to, and I am not old enough to remember when Erica Jong's Fear of Flying was released as a book. I'm told it was a publishing phenomenon. And I am definitely old enough to remember when every single book that I did read contained references to it. And one of the concepts in it was, and cover the ears of your children if they're listening, the idea of a zipless fuck. And I think that the concept there is sort of the idea of no strings attached sex where you can enjoy it in the minute and feel no emotional complications afterwards. I think that Starstruck is a great example of zipless television. It is a show that you can absolutely invest in fully for two to three hours when you're binging it. I mean, episodes are 21 minutes long, which means that a six episode season, you're binging it in under two and a half hours if that's what you want to do, which is basically what I did earlier this week. And you can fully invest emotionally in the characters for that two and a half hours and then not think about them again for another, well, I mean, apparently it's been uh, 15 months. No, that's not how it is. Nearly 18 months since the last season. So that's, that's totally what the show is designed for. And it's totally what the show succeeds at. Now, I've watched all of season three. And does it feel as if the core premise of the show, which is ordinary New Zealander living in London has a one-night stand with a movie star and their different worlds prove insurmountable and they struggle to maybe be in love, but maybe just not be destined to be together. And it's a premise that is more thin than the show necessarily thinks it is and there were moments in season two where legitimately i wasn't sure why we were still necessarily following the stories of rose Matafeo's jesse and nikesh patel's tom i just wasn't necessarily as interested as her love story as i wanted it to be but i i think you can see in the third season, some awareness of premise fatigue, and you can see the show trying to expand its horizons, look about itself a tiny bit to kind of look at what it would take for this to be a sustainable, ongoing show rather than just being, I don't know, a two hour movie like Notting Hill, basically. And some of the stuff it does, I think it does really well. I think that the second season, for the, I mean, the third season rather, for the first time, it feels as if the show is making a concerted effort to build out the ensemble in a way where I actually found myself remembering some of the characters' names. Like Emma C.D.'s Kate and Al Roberts' Ian, they've been major characters throughout the show, but if you were to have asked me either of their names or much of anything about them, I I don't think I would have been able to tell you. And that's before you get into other couples on the show, like Nick Sampson, Steve and uh, Lola Rose Maxwell, Sarah. There are lots of people who kind of pop up in the third season where I wasn't always sure if we'd even met these people before, but by the end of the six uh, episodes, I I felt like I had some investment in them, and that's before you get to the people who are much more vividly memorable, so there's exactly one episode in which Minnie Driver's character Tom's agent pops up, and I honestly wish that we could have a little bit more of her because Minnie Driver is having such a blast with this character. More than anything, though, the second season feels much more consciously, let's kind of enjoy how talented Rose Matafeo is, let's give her different amounts of drama to play. And since she co-wrote every episode and also co-directed every episode this season, uh, you you can kind of understand that. There's a new love story for her with Lorne McFadden's Liam. It's, It's a little kind of tentative because the show still has to involve Tom. And so it takes a little while for that to get into gear. But really and truly, I enjoyed the third season in the same way I enjoyed the first two seasons, which were two and a half hours of charming, pleasant television that I will not necessarily think of for the next 18 months. But if it turns out that Max and it's, british producers decide to order a fourth season i will be very happy to follow these characters for another two and a half hours of television but it's there's no like urgency to it but i think that really and truly is kind of the best thing about it is that there's no urgency to it and so starstruck it's back it's very pleasant and our conversation with rose was a a really fun conversation she is extremely charming extremely talented and if it turns out that where the show gets by the end of uh the sixth episode of the third season is, is kind of the end of where Starstruck is as a television show. That would not crush me in any way because I would be perfectly happy to just be like, okay, sure. So what's next, Rose? And so that's fine. The bigger show premiering this week, uh, it has already premiered, is Amazon's Gen V, which is a spinoff, of course, from The Boys. And look, every everybody... Home has this experience, and this is an experience that extends to TV critics as well, where there are shows that you like, but you are very aware that other people like them significantly more. And as a result of other people liking shows significantly more, your version of liking the show begins to feel less and less like liking it and more and more like you dislike the show, even if you really and truly do like the show. And I, I think that that's kind of the way I've always felt about The Boys, is I've always thought that The Boys was a clever show. I've always thought it was satirically amusing and interesting. I've thought it was kind of audacious in how it handled gore and violence and the superhero genre and all that. But I don't know that I was ever blown away by it. But some people are and have been. And so as a result, my enthusiasm for the show dampened when the reality is when I watch The Boys, it generally makes me fairly happy. It is a show where probably I would guess that, and and this is another complicating factor in my liking it, I would guess that people who like The Boys, probably roughly 75 to 80% of them like it because they find the satire funny, because they find the violence both funny and exciting and amusingly gory. And, you know, they just like the way it upends the superhero genre. But then there is still probably 15%, 20%, I don't want to speculate about being larger, that has decided that Homelander is the hero of the show, and there's a strange reactionary faction of fandom that likes the show for, let's just put it bluntly, for the wrong reasons, where they are willfully misinterpreting the show for the purposes of enjoying it on its Fascistic levels, which in reality are satirical, but if you strip away the satire, yeah. Now, of course, none of our listeners, who are a wonderfully smart and endearing group of people, are watching it for that reason. I am not referring to the people who like Anthony Starr's performance as Homelander and think it is a complicated, fascinating character because the main actor playing it is really interesting to watch. I'm talking about the people who think that Homelander is the hero of the story, and if you have not written a tweet, adding one of the female members of the cast and insulting them because they take up screen time that should be going to Homelander, then I am not talking negatively about your reception of the show. It is entirely fine to like the show because it is satirical. It is not fine to send tweets at actresses on the show telling them they suck because their characters were mean to Homelander. Anywho, so uh, <laughs> so Gen V is a spinoff, and I would say that it is, it's not a full refresh of the series it is tonally virtually identical heavy on satire heavy on snark heavy on insider references if you are a a hollywood obsessive it is full of things that you will be like ha i get that joke which is always pleasant so there are jokes about the pool parties at brian singer's house ha, ha, i get that hell there are jokes about paley fest which to me seems like a wildly inside base inside baseball thing to be joking about but they are absolutely making jokes about things that take place at Paley Fest. If you don't know, it's a promotional thing tied to the William S. Paley Television Museum uh, that fans like to go to. It's kind of an amusing thing to hear referenced in the series. But what it does and what it has is it has a new setting, it has a new set of characters, and I liked the refresh of it. So the new setting is Golovkin University, jokingly called God You, which is a superhero college, where some superheroes take classes in crime fighting and learn to become heroic. And then apparently a large percentage of the students take classes in acting and basically become brand ambassadors for superhero dumb appearing on reality shows and whatnot. And so you get those levels of satire like The Boys. But I would say more so than The Boys, this is very much a story with a female skew. The main character is Marie Moreau, played by Jazz Sinclair, uh, played very well by Jazz Sinclair, who discovers when she goes through puberty that she has the ability to bend blood, to manipulate blood, which becomes very traumatic and tragic when it manifests itself when you're having your first period, becomes even more powerful when you use it in other circumstances. But anyway, there is an initial tragedy in her life. But she gets... Hope for her future when she gets to Golovkin U and she meets an assortment of supporting characters. Her roommate is Emma played by Lizzie Broadway. Her power is that she can make herself small. but just as Marie's power relates to female adolescence and rites of passage, Emma's ability to make herself small has metaphorical tie-ins with both female body issue and body issues and also with eating disorders. And so there's a lot of that explored there. Other characters include a character who is a gender shifter, which brings in some conversations about trans identity. I think it probably could do better than it does, but that's okay. There's another woman whose power relates to persuasion and manipulation. That She's played by Maddie Phillips, who a handful of people will remember from Teenage Bounty Hunters. Frankly, she was fantastic in Teenage Bounty Hunters. I wish that show had made her a star. It did not. But yeah, so the show, it has a lot of interesting satirical points to be made many of them relating to the intersection of superhero commodification and female adolescence. I think probably some of the conversations it's having could be had in a lot more depth and provocative ways. Sometimes it just sort of settles on a superficial version of satire and then explains what the satire is and then moves on. I, I wish it did a little bit less explaining. The main plot, which does indeed tie into Vought Industries and tie into the boys and, and all of this stuff about Compound V that was the sort of of the spine of the past couple seasons of The Boys, it's there, it becomes a little perfunctory. Uh, critics have been sent six of episodes of the 8 episodes season, and uh, the first couple episodes were my favorite because they were the ones that had the most exposition, that had the most world-building, that had the most of the satire, and they're all kind of on the longish side. They're all 50 to 55 minutes. At a certain point, episodes become much shorter, much choppier. The last two or three episodes are under 40 minutes and feel really rushed like they become almost all plot and i I liked that less that became less the version of this that i enjoyed but even still there are crazy things that happen in this show they are not things that will be surprising in terms of their level of craziness if you've watched the boys so it's lots and lots and lots of stuff about people exploding the show loves to make people explode and you know if you're into that get ready for it. The show loves kind of sexuality, but in an outsized way, which is to say, find yourself something you love in your life as much as this show loves giant penis props. So there is definitely, there are several giant penis prop based scenes. And if you are into that, huzzah. And then not to spoil anything other than the basic words, there are action scenes involving puppets, that are a tremendous amount of fun. That is the kind of thing that this show and that The Boys also does extremely well, where they take kind of wild conceptual ideas and they run aggressively with it. So there is a lot of that. But yeah, I just, I liked the fact that it felt a little bit fresher than The Boys has felt to me at times. It has flaws. The flaws compound, I would say, as it becomes more driven by plot and less by the location. It's sort of absurd when you get to episode six that characters are still taking classes at Golovkin University, but Golovkin University has become almost irrelevant. It's a little bit like when the Harry Potter books, sorry, I I know we're not supposed to necessarily talk about Harry Potter, uh, but, you know, hey, there's a reason why the read any other book meme existed on Twitter, that by the time things got to season six and seven, and the world was coming to an end, but they were also still having a house by house competition with, you know, points from Gryffindor it always seemed ridiculous similarly by the sixth episode already anything related to classes and Golovkin feels ridiculous and pointless but I enjoyed it I don't know that people are going to say that this is the best thing since sliced bread in the way that some people feel about the boys so maybe I'll be able to just enjoy it for its modest merits and in that case it would be a little bit like Starstruck a show that I like for its modest merits Lots more next week, though, Leslie.
2: Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast.
0: Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. They help spread the word of mouth. You can always come say hi to us on social media. In almost all cases, she's at snoodit with two O's, and I'm at the fine print, F-I-E-N. If you have questions for future mailbag segments and... You know, you guys did such a good job of giving us things to talk about in the past few weeks that maybe we'll make Mailbag into a monthly thing, if not necessarily a weekly thing. We love your questions and you can send them to us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That is TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
2: Until next week, Dan.